Our DT Systems, the Wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Wrap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course, bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, Cliff, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking time out of your day to to join us. Do me a favor, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me on. My name is Cliff Enzor. I am the uh, owner and founder of Uplander. We are a lifestyle brand located in Michigan for everything geared towards upland hunting. And when I say lifestyle brand, I try and bring everything into one circumference of relating everything in the digital space towards upland hunting. And we're not just an apparel brand, but we're also a content producing brand where we try to incorporate everything that makes us so passionate about our sport of upland hunting, whether it's the dogs, um, the buddies that we hunt with, or, you know, even the things that come down to the things that we say in the field, you know, uh, missing birds, hitting birds, whatever it is, everything that we are so passionate about and love our sport, it's everything wrapped into one single brand with Uplander at the pinnacle point of it. And I think that the name hopefully fits it really well in everything that we're trying to do. Absolutely. So, how did you get into upland hunting? How has that become a passion of yours? Uh, it's something that I grew up hunting, and it's it's not something that totally took stake until a little bit later in life, uh, but it's something I've been around my entire life doing. I grew up hunting uh, ever since I could walk. I feel like my dad was taking me into a deer blind with them. We were going out. We always had bird dogs growing up. We had Britneys and we would, we'd go out hunting with the dogs from time to time. And it was never so much at that point in time about the dogs. It was just about, you know, us going out and having a good time and what we were doing. And the dogs were an added bonus to that. And my, my, maybe my perspective has changed on that. 
a little bit now. It's a little bit of 180 where the focus is so much and what I'm trying to do with the dogs and everything else outside of that is a plus. But I mean, that's where it all started, man. Just going out hunting with dad, having a good time with dogs and yeah, just growing up an outdoor lifestyle and my dad fueling that passion for me. I mean, I guess I've with father's day coming up, I, I guess it's a good time to plug my dad and just, you know, for everything that my dad took the time to get me involved with things outdoors and pass that on. And it's funny. I, I think about myself and the family that I'm from. I have so many cousins, um, on both sides, aunts and uncles and well. And, and, and if you look at like the lifestyle and what everything is funneling down to just from the population in general, like out of 10 cousins on each side, I'm the only one that hunts in our entire family. Really? And it's so, yeah, yeah. And it's just, you know, sometimes I feel like that puts it into perspective of me where things are moving. I guess maybe I shifted a little off topic of this, but it's something oh, I think about, good. something I thinking about from, from time to time and just how, how that played out. But yeah, just, you know, back to props to my dad for getting me involved and always taking me with him, whether it was hunting or fishing. And yeah, that's where I guess I owe it all up to and back to father's day. So yeah, cheers to pops and from there, everything is just, uh, everything's evolved from there. That's really cool. So I'm going to give you a, uh, a shameless plug and probably a shameless moment, but, um, I was a little hung over one morning. Kevin's probably listening. Like, where's this going? But I'm, I have to get up super early to take care of the dogs. My fiance's sleeping in and I'm laying on the couch, like, ah, ah, drinking water. And I'm flipping through YouTube on my TV and you popped up and I've followed you for a long time on Instagram, but you popped up on YouTube and I started watching, uh, I went on like a binge of your YouTube videos and you do a phenomenal job, man. And I, I sent a video, I can't remember what one it was, but I sent it to Kevin. I'm like, this is awesome. You should watch it and let's, you know, connect with them and get them on the show. So if you're an upland bird hunter, and even if you're not, if you want to watch some really cool grouse hunting and guys out in the field with their dogs, check out your YouTube. It was, it was really good stuff, man. It was fun. Thanks, man. I really, I really do truly appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. And, uh, I appreciated the hangover watch, uh, <laughs> nursing myself <laughs> back to life and it was fun. I mean, the, the quality is really good, but it also just gets you super pumped up for our season. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you don't, but Kevin and I both have setters. I've got, a, have trained a few utility dogs for NAVDA. Um, and one of those dogs is a dear friend of mine, his owner. And so he and I are like grouse guys together. I mean, we just, we pound the woods and have a great time and it's a, a real break for me. And so to, uh, it feels like you're with you on the hunt on your YouTube channel. And that, that is one reason I really liked it, but, um, it gets me fired up to like get in the woods and go. Yeah. I mean, I guess even thinking about sometimes you, you, some part of if I think back 10 years ago when I first got into filming stuff, I mean, part of it was so you could sit back and you could rewatch some of these things. And every once in a while I find myself just drifting off. And it's a, it's a late night or something. You had a beer or two and you're just going through some old footage and you just, yeah, it gets you pumped up for, you know, what's, what's coming up and just even other content creators and just going out and having that access to like those types of things to just immerse yourself. in. yeah, it gets you fired up for season coming up. 
Absolutely. Are there any uh, other YouTubers or whatever that do what you do that you would recommend as well? Like, like if I'm going to go on a binge, like, like I, I think I watch most of your videos already. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, is there anyone else that's like doing it where you're like, dude, this one, you got to check this person out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're you're starting to see a little bit more of it finally push through in the upland side of it. It just it seems like exactly it's you know, kind of sparse. Yeah, it is. And when you look at the hunting industry as a whole, and like let's take for instance, if you compare the big game world to upland hunting, like well, even upland or even the big game industry is so far behind what the the rest of the world, whether it's fashion or entertainment or any type of media has been doing for years. And finally, now in the last decade, it started to trickle in the last half half decade, a lot more where you see a lot more stuff on YouTube from big game people and things like that. And now that's just finally starting to translate over to the Upland world as, as well. Like that's how, just how far behind everything in this space is. And you're starting to see it uh, trickle down and more upland content. You're seeing more guys like, you, you know, yourself get involved with producing online content for training and just more online content and in general for dogs, uh, whether it's upland or waterfowl space. And it's, it's really a cool thing to watch evolve and push forward in our, in our industry. Uh, there is a couple other guys that I've seen that do a really good job on their videos. One of them is a personal guy that I, I hunt with quite a bit. His name is Justin Berkeley, Northern forest gun dogs. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel as well. Northern forest gun dogs. He does a really good job of, you know, going through with building a storyline, at least with his dogs and, and what he's doing. And that's, that's what everybody wants to follow along with is some type of storyline with what people are doing. And that's, that's a cool part about it. And yeah, I think you're starting to see a lot more stuff like that come forth in our industry. And it's, it's, it's cool to see. Yeah. I really applaud you because the, the quality is good and it's enjoyable to watch. And again, it like motivates me. It's like, Oh, I'm just itching for grouse time. Grouse and woodcock. I mean, for me, it's a, Retriever training and duck hunting are meshed together so tightly that sometimes it feels a little bit like work or I feel obligated to whip the phone out when really I should be enjoying the moment. Um, where when I'm grouse hunting, yeah, I can't. And I don't have the the equipment that you have to like capture it either. But it's just like that dog, my setter, it's just me and her, man. Boots, a gun, and a dog, and I go. And I can go for an hour. You know, I can go for four hours, but I don't have to get up at the butt crack of dawn and, and do it. And so to sit there watching your stuff is like, I'm just itching for that little mini vacation to go in the grouse woods. You, you make it sound so simple. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I, I guess I think about this all the time. Like it's a little bit easier in some regards to go grouse hunting where, like you said, you just grab your gun and your good pair of boots and like kick the dog loose. But it's definitely not easier. Like every time I think that no. and then you go, you're huffing and puffing and you're sweating like a... Well, you're like, you're, why the hell am I out here doing this? This yeah, sounded exactly. a lot more like, fun I 20 also just been eating donuts on a boat. But it, there's just so much that goes into like shooting ducks and stuff. But it is funny. I always find the drive there is always like, oh yeah, this was so way easier. Yeah. And then as soon just, as you're I hiking, just mean, it's not. 
I mean it for me, it's a mentality, sh- a mentality shift. Yeah. So I can shut well, my brain off and, and just go and walk and hunt. Well, and what's interesting. Funny, like, sorry, Cliff. Go it's ahead, all man. good, dude. So it, it's <laughs> funny as I can relate to that in a completely 180 of how you're talking about it. And I try really, really hard to not let myself come to this. And uh, the biggest thing I always tell myself is when you're creating content, don't let the content overtake the hunting experience. And it's, it's something that like, I kind of burnt myself out and years ago when I was trying to film my whitetail hunts and I made that basically into my job for filming big game hunts and I really burned myself out of it. And then for this, you know, I'm trying to keep it where it's just, it's mellow and cool. And I'm having a different mindset where I'm not letting this become, you know, so frustrating to me that I'm not getting the content that I want, that I'm not enjoying the hunt anymore. And that's really a really big part of it that I've learned. And it can become frustrating at times because it feels like you're going out. And if you're doing this and putting all this work into filming the editing, getting the dogs to, to do things right. And you, you want it all to come together perfectly. And sometimes it just doesn't always happen and you can't get frustrated about it. And a lot of times I feel like that when I go hunting nowadays, that there's just so much, you know, I'm so far deep into the filming aspect of it. Like, you know, it's become literally a job. And even though, you, you do these types of things to get away from your daily routine or your job. It's kind of morphed into that in an odd way in a bit. And it is funny. I actually went, um, I've never been a big duck hunter myself. I, I, I went out a time or two with my dad. We waited through um, a deer lease that we had back when I was a kid and it was flooded timber and we shot a few wood ducks. But outside of that, I've never been a duck hunter, but I did this past fall, take one of my dogs and go and sit out on the edge of a duck pond a couple of days after uh, duck season open here in Michigan. And it was funny because I just felt like I had completely gotten away from like my grouse hunting routine or my regular upland hunting routine. Like I didn't give a crap. Like I was just out there having a good time. It was chill. I was just sitting there hanging with my dog. If something came in and I shot it, I shot it. If not, if not. Right. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel. It's just like a, a little light switch flip where I can tone it down and relax. And, and I still relax and enjoy duck hunting like thoroughly but it's still so close to what I do from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed that, you know, that upland hunt is, is different. Um, tell us about your dogs. You, you said you grew up with Brittany's. Yes. Yeah. I grew up with Brittany's. Uh, my dad always had Brittany's. We had a beagle in the mix too when I was younger and we, we rabbit hunted a few times, but it was never anything serious. The big, the beagle was just kind of there hanging out with us. It'd run off every one once in a while we'd get pissed about it. And that was the extent of, of, of that. But yeah, other, we had Brittany's growing up and that just kind of translated right over into me getting my own dog. And now I have, I have four of them. No way. How old are they? What are their names? I've got a six year old male named Yeti a uh, three-year-old female named Ember, a uh, two-and-a-half-year-old female named Aspen, and a third female that is about to turn a year, uh, the end of June here. So she's going on 12 months, and that's actually a pup that we bred. So uh, oh, I'm pretty excited about her. That's really cool. So um, Yeti, he always kind of stands out in your videos. He's like, you know, you'll kind of comment, commentary on it, and it's like, all right, well, we let the – the other one's run. Now it's time to break the, bring gun, the big guns out. 
you do a great job working with your dogs, man. For for a guy who does this for a living, you know, your dogs are crisp and deliver nicely to hand and and do what they're supposed to. You know, obviously hunting, they all make mistakes, but overall, like you've done a really nice job. How have you molded them? How what was that process like developing them? Thank you. Yeah, I, I really do appreciate. I mean, that's a big compliment coming from somebody who works with badass dogs on a day in and out basis and makes badass dogs. So I, I really do appreciate that comment. And it all comes down to, you know, just working with dogs at every single aspect of what our life is. And like you mentioned, you know, molding the dog. It's not with with, with my lifestyle that I live, I have so much access to the dogs all the time, whether we're, you know, training or doing anything serious or not. It's all about molding the dogs into specific behaviors and conditioning them to do certain things because I have so much time available with the dogs. I'm not trying to put a dog through a certain, you know, 30 day program because that's not what I am. I just, you know, I have so much time that I'm spending with the dogs. And I guess that's kind of how my mindset is that every aspect of everything we do, I expect the dog to, to listen, you know, to mind me, to, to have its own independence, but still listen to me when I need it to do. And I try and translate to that to every single thing that we do, whether we're just, you know, coming out of the kennels in the morning, you know, going outside for the morning for, you know, bathroom breaks or, you know, eating in the evening, whatever, or if we're doing retrieving, uh, any type of work that we're doing. And I guess that's kind of how the mindset translates over to everything. Is there a program that you followed or, you know, a club that you joined or mentors that kind of guided you along the way as you developed these dogs? You know, I tried when I first got into it of training dogs more on my own of, you know, sitting down and looking at this one program versus this, this or that. And it was just kind of, you know, trial by error. And eventually things worked out where I got and I felt like I've, I've gotten to a good rhythm right now of understanding, you know, how my dogs are going to work and how they're going to work out if I do A, B, and C with them from the start. And that's kind of how it's, it's translated over. Uh, do you, I kind of, I need to write it down cause I'm going to forget, but I, cause I want to talk more specifically on the breed itself but I am curious, like, do you have homing pigeons? Do you work them on wild birds? How did you develop their point and steadiness and all that? I do. I do not have pigeons myself. I have access to them from time to time, but pigeons aren't really a thing that I utilize a whole lot. Um, I guess from this, where I'm at now, I guess I see the dogs at all different progressions and different things that they need. And from, I guess if I'm starting my, one of my younger dogs, like I'll say example, my, my pup Fox who's about to turn a year now. So yeah. her first year has just been spent where, um, a gun broke the dog really worked on her just, you know, minding me teaching some, a few basic commands in the house and learning her own, giving her her own space to learn her own independence, but still being mindful when I asked her to do something and then translate that over into field work. So if we're going out, we're, we're running the dog, you know, if I give the dog just a simple cue, like over here, let's go just, you know, just be mindful for me from time to time and then translate that into bird work where, um, I'll, I'll start out with uh, quail for the young dog and I, I might put it in like a launcher 
to start if the dog has had no prior exposure to, to birds before. If it, if it hasn't had any prior exposure before, I'll put the bird just on the ground and just see however it reacts to the bird. Let it come up to it. If the quail is going to fly away or jump, or if it's going to stand there and let the, the dog take it out, whatever happens at that point, you're not really worried about it. And then from there, try and scale back just a little bit and a little bit. But as long as in that first year, you can take that dog out and turn it loose and it can point a bird. And it doesn't even have to like, you know, be the steadiest point you've ever seen. As long as that dog can point a bird, like let's go hunting game on, like we're going to go hunting and you're going to learn the rest from there. And then the following year, we can follow it up. If you need a little bit more steadiness training, a little bit more woe work, you know, if you're trying to creep in on a point while I'm moving in those types of things. But that first year, if that dog can point a bird, like, let's go, let's have fun. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. I think the main point you you said is you got it introduced to gunfire properly. So, you know, pointing butterflies in the backyard and then taking it hunting, no. But if it's pointing things and it's it's cool with gunfire, I think that the wild birds, especially in an area like, you know, you're lucky enough to be in Michigan um, where you have a plethora of woodcock and grouse, they're going to learn from those birds a lot. So as long as they're not spooked by gunfire, they l- listen to you well enough to where they're not going to chase off and get lost in the woods. Um, plus we have all the technology, you know, you always kind of look at your watch on YouTube, uh, mm-hmm. show where the dog is. So you've got the GPS a- action. Um, so you know where they're at and you can build them. But I think wild birds truly do teach a pointing dog more you know, what, where, what, what I do is I have homing pigeons, you know, so I, I get them on homing pigeons. I teach them how to be steady. I can move in. I can pull one out of my bag and do a, a simultaneous like double flush. I can, I can manufacture a lot of instances that these guys will see in the wild, but we don't have enough wild birds. And we're actually, this is a question I have for you. We're not allowed to, train on them from this date to this date because of nesting season. And so a lot of the guys back in the day would go during the woodcock flight basically and work dogs on wild birds. And and is that a thing in Michigan or, or are you not allowed to do it either? Yeah. So the, the cutoff date in the spring when you have to stop running dogs on birds, wild birds in Michigan is like, April 15th. And then it goes until July 7th or 8th, depending on the year and the, how the dates fall. Um, so you it really, that period is when you can't be out in the woods and you know, you're not even supposed to have a dog off a six foot leash, technically, even in your backyard. Um, g- crazy stuff, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I'm sure everybody follows that rule. <laughs> yes. E- right. Easy, I'm sure all, all strict followers, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I have, I have run my dogs on spring woodcock in the past. It's, it's not really something I've utilized on my older dogs so much anymore, but if like my, my pup Fox, I did take her out a few times and I ran her on spring woodcock just because those were the birds that I had available and the dog was coming into it. We had just came home from Arizona for a a month long trip we had down there and the dog scowl got ran on wild birds. And that was really one of the first times I hunted this pup at six months old. And then we came home here, sat for a month or so. And then she got ran on woodcock here in in Michigan for about a month or so. But 
it's it's a thing that I'll I'll take like a younger dog out like that. But as far as the older dogs, I mean, they all already they already understand the game. They don't really need the tune up at that point. And it's just it's added stress and added things on top of the dogs. And I guess I, I, maybe my perception of it changed a little bit uh, a couple of years ago when I had actually a really bad injury. It wasn't that bad, but I did have an injury from one of my older dogs that I was running on spring woodcock. And if you think about woodcock habitat, it's real dense, thorny, a lot of crap that your dog has to run through. And there's a, a risk involved. Anytime you're out running, you put a dog on the ground, there's always a risk on the vault. So on the ground, or there's always a risk involved, whether it's hunting season or, or not. And I, I, didn't think anything of it at the time. The dog, I ran the dog, didn't have any problems with him. He completed his run. It was about 45 minutes long. We come back, give him a quick look over. He's all good. The next morning we wake up and I'm sitting out here and my wife is back in the kitchen and she starts screaming on a run out there. And the dog is sitting in a big pool of blood and he pulled a thorn that was from like an olive branch out of the pad of his foot. And it just started profusely bleeding everywhere. And he was literally sitting in like a 12 by 12 pool of blood underneath his foot. And, you know, that was just, you know, it's something that just because I wanted to run my dog on, you know, spring woodcock. Yeah, I get it. But I mean, that could happen anytime too, I guess it's the, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's one of those things like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And yeah, that sucks. Oh no, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's absolutely that totally that both sides of it. I mean, it all comes back down to, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Anytime I let my dogs out at the house here, just to go outside, there's a, a risk they could run off. They could get hit by a vehicle or, right. or anything. I guess, I just guess I look at it maybe as now it's, it's not miles that the dogs necessarily need put the, the, the risk at that point is bigger than the reward Very for good. something like that. So what do you do with the, let's, let's forget Fox for a minute. Um, you have veteran, you know, three veteran dogs, Yeti, Aspen, and what was the other one? Uh, Ember. I would say two veteran dogs and then one that's still kind of in the middle. Okay. In the middle. What are you doing through the summer to get them in condition, to keep them steady? Is that all quail work? Yeah, it is. Um, I will have a time or two that I'll meet up with somebody and run dogs on, on pigeons, get some birds in the launcher and just launch birds out in front of them. Um, just to, just to give them a little bit of a surprise or tune them up a little bit more. Um, but for the most part, I do run on quail just because I personally, where I live, don't have access to pigeons. We just have a, a half acre lot that we live on. And a lot of, uh, places that I train on is either, you know, lots of friends that I have, or, or place or meeting up with somebody that has, you know, access to somewhere to run. And, you know, quail is the most access thing that we have to, and it's not, it's not definitely not as nice as working with pigeons, but I have come to, after doing it for three or four, three or four years, come up with a few things that have helped me out with versus just going out and throwing a quail on the ground. And, you know, sometimes you're, when you, when you use crappy flying birds, you sometimes set yourself up for disaster. But there's a, a few right. things that I've... I'm going to stop you because this yep. is great dog training talk. What, what, are you, what do you mean by it? Di- digress into this little rabbit hole of... Because I've used quail and I flip and hate them. Yes, they're, they're like, awful. If there's any dew on the ground, they don't fly. 
if you dizzy too much, they don't work. If you don't dizzy enough, they're gone. Like, um, what are some tips and tricks and, you know, talk, talk to me more about this stuff. So the, the worst thing you could absolutely do is just go out and just throw a quail, like in a little bushel of grass, right? Especially with a young, inexperienced dog, um, because that, that bird is giving off such a crappy scent cone. Like it's basically producing absolutely zero scent. And then d- depending on what the conditions you're working in, if it's really dry, hot summer day, and that scent is just burning up so fast, like that bird's giving off absolutely zero scent cone. So you're setting your dog up right there to not even have a good opportunity to find the bird. It's going to be doing a lot of nosing around when it hits somewhat of little scent that's around. It's not going to be, it's all going to be ground scent and the dog's just going to kind of nose around. Eventually it's going to stumble its nose right into that little bugger sitting on the ground. And that quail ain't going to take flight. It's going to pop its head up and look at that dog and go, Oh shit. And then the dog's probably going to take it out. If your dog, depending on how broke your dog is. But if, like I said, if it's a young dog, yeah, that dog's probably just going in there and taking the bird out. Right. And then it learns it can take the bird out. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that is probably the <laughs> biggest I'm, issue. I'm, my vocabulary gets very <laughs> vulgar and, I, and I'm cussing the birds and whatever. Yeah. So yeah, everybody's in a bad mood and you just, you're, you're pissed off at that bird. It always comes down to, I, I effing hate these quail. I find myself saying that a lot. Yes. It's, you're on. trying to kick it up, but yeah. so then it's running and then the dog oh geez yes yep and that's another thing a lot of times if you plant a quail if you don't dizzy it enough there's like a fine line if you dizzy it too much it just sits there and it doesn't do anything but if you don't dizzy it enough it just it wanders off and while that leads again to your dog going into the initial spot and it doesn't leave much scent behind it's nosing around going what was here this is kind of fun and then it trails right into that bird and guess what it grabs it again so if you can, if you can work with what I'll do is I'll try and get good flying quail. And I raised quail for a couple of years myself, uh, Bob's and Tennessee reds. I, I built a flight pen behind our barn and I would rail raise like a hundred to 200 quail every year. And I would go in here every day to this pen. And I would like, it is funny because they start getting accustomed to you real quick. I'd go in there and I'd feed them and they'd come running up to me like, Oh dude, you're our friend. Like we like you. But I was like, no, get, get away from me. And I'd start like kicking them and throwing stuff at them. And like, I eventually they'd get, they get a little spooky of you and they don't want much to do with you. So I'd go in there on the daily and get them really kicked up, um, get them, get them flying well. And then I could take those birds and I would felt confident that if I put it in a launcher, the bird was actually going to fly away. So I was controlling the situation and that's how I was starting out with the dog. And especially on a first run, with a dog when we're just getting back into training that dog hits a little bit of scent and I can just launch that bird. And now essentially it is a pigeon and the bird just flies away and the dog never has a chance to get it. Right. Um, and then from there I'll take them and I'll just start planting them on the ground in little cages. I'll just make like a little makeshift uh, cage and works, works best has been the heat lamps. Uh, if uh, you have like a heat lamp for poultry or something, it comes with this wire cage on the bottom Well, you can take that off and you can take two of them and put them together and it fits a quail perfectly. And you can just drop that <laughs> out in the field with a quail. That's a little tidbit right there. That is a tidbit. Yes. I also would say kit cages are about 20 bucks. <laughs> and that heat lamp was probably 20 bucks. <laughs> this is true, but I already had the heat lamps because I was raising the quail. 
I dig it. I love it, dude. Keep well, let me ask you this. <laughs> you, you, no, I love the ingenuity. You said you don't have room for homing pigeons, but you, you have got room for two hundred quail. Quails. I could. Ha- All right, I have room for homing pigeons. I just don't have anywhere initially, right here where I'm at on my location to run the dogs on those homing pigeons. And I guess I could, uh, you know, teach them to home and take them different places to fly. But I don't know. It's just it's it's it's, it's one of those things I could do, but. Uh, I don't know. I just no, I follow you. I've made feelings also talking on it. To uh, Uncle Bob here, who loves his pigeons. I do. I do. They're I like do love time. pigeons. I would. I would love to have pigeons, just because it would be so. Like I'd just have so much fun, like being into the birds. I mean, like, oh, dude, look at this one that's got like mostly white, but he's got just this little bit of speckling and his black coming off of his feathers. Like, me. yeah, stuff like that. Bob yeah. had one that was called the Mother Dragons. And that the thing had about dragons. five thousand pigeon, pigeon babies, and it was just the greatest. Yeah, rest, she, rest in peace. Rest in peace. She got killed by a weasel. Ah, oh, yep. That's a hard way to go out. I had. But that, she gave you a lot. I had that pigeon for almost eight years. Really? That's, that's a yeah. lot of. That's a lot of dogs trained. Yep. A lot of popped traps. A lot of action on that bird. She was a beast. She was cool looking. She was brown with iridescent green around her neck. Um, And this like, you know how they got the white thing on their nose? I don't know what it's called. Yeah. It was like, she was so old. It was like gnarled up with warts and just, she'd pop out babies left and right. The mother of dragons. Uh, (laughs) But uh, anyways, we digress. So, (laughs) Tell me, I do want to talk about the Brittany Spaniel as a breed. Um, I have limited experience with them. Um, in fact, called a seer. Quick Google, sorry. The pigeon, the nose thing, called a seer. C e c r e. Learning something new. Isn't yeah, that? I didn't know that. But again, I'm not a pigeon guy. Unfortunately, maybe I'm a yeah. wannabe pigeon guy, but I'm You'll not get there. there. You'll I'm get a that pigeon, pigeon guy as well. Yeah, but I had I had a handful of quail that we had for like three years, and I felt awful on the last day that I emptied out our pen and I took them out, and I we they got turned into the dog dog food basically. Well, not dog food, but fun for the dogs. Yeah. I felt a little bit bad about them. Three I had years to shoot them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one hold on. One thing back to the the quail real quick. So I mentioned putting the quail in traps, and this is now where I've I've moved on with the dog where it can go in, it's going to snap on point, and it's going to hold and point on a planted quail. And instead of going in there, and it's always a pain in the ass trying to kick up quail if you got to plant it on the ground and they don't fly very well. So what I'll do is I'll have this quail in a little trap down below, or even if I have it in a launcher. Sometimes they don't always fly out of the launcher very well. So whatever the bird is in, I'll always have extra quail in a bird bag with me. And when that dog goes on point, I'll take a few steps in front of that dog. And as long as the dog is still standing there on point, I'll just chuck a bird right out from underneath my feet real quick. And there goes the bird for that dog. So I'm not trying to, you know, kick up any quail or anything. And then I can easily come through with the next dog in my string and I don't have to replant a bird. The bird's already sitting there in that cage. I can just run the same exact scent cone where a little bit of scent's already built up from this one bird. That's a good pro tip. So you got an ace in your sleeve basically, right? To, yes. To again manufacture what you want instead of hoping that it doesn't pop up and land on the ground two feet away. Yes. Yep. 
can we can we this that's a really good one can we like slowly just review that one so everybody kind of understands like the the why it's important to control the controllables yeah so yeah so a a quail suck at flying so you want to and whenever you're in in a situation with your dog especially training you want to be able to control the situation and quail and young dogs or unsteady dogs don't always mix. So you need to best find your best way to be able to control that. And you can do that by putting a quail into a cage. So the dog can't take it out and the quail is just going to sit there nicely in one spot. And if it, if it's a younger dog and you're still trying to get this dog to progress in its steadiness, the dog will come up and hopefully you're not too far behind it. And the dog goes on point. And if it's a dog, you're trying to get to hold point longer um, you feel like maybe you're not going to be able to make it where you walk out in front of the dog. You don't want to put too much pressure on the dog, but you want it to get a reward for standing there um, and standing still. So before you can even make it to the dog, you can throw that bird, pull one out of a bird bag on your side. If you have another quail and throw that bird over top of that dog and the dog will look up, see a bird taking flight and think that's it. That's its reward. So it's going to take off after that quail that you threw for it. And that's that dog's reward is that chase after that bird for standing still. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. eventually you can progress where you get to the point where you can now walk in front of the bird or walk in front of the dog. And instead of trying to kick the bird up out of the grass, you can just throw a bird out of your bird bag for you, for the dog. Very good. <clears throat> All right. I dig it. I think that that is a great tip. Uh, let's go into the Brittany as a breed nuances quirks um again like i said i've had limited experience in them most of what i've done is short hairs drothars poodle pointers setters griffons what else have i done english pointer but most of them were short hairs and setters so the Brittany. I'm going to lay out some, what are they called? Stereotypes. I'm going to lay out stereotypes and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. All right. Well, let's and see I it. only have a few, but I I'm wanna... excited for this. This will be cool. It's a, it's a good podcast segment. <laughs> yeah. Stereotypes of dog breeds. Um, soft. feel like i'm gonna be split on all these i feel like i know what's coming up and this is one of the ones that i feel like see all right i'm gonna just break this up real quick and i'm gonna say i feel like britney's are overall very easy dogs to condition and i feel like they pick up and condition on exactly what you want them to do so if you want the dog to be a little bit soft and maybe you you overwork it it's going to become soft real quick but that doesn't mean that the dog is overall necessarily soft compared to what you're doing with it. And I feel like that translates over to a lot, but I guess uh, to backtrack on what I just said, yes, they can be a little bit softer. Okay. All right. Fair. Good answer. It's also dog dependent, right? You have several of them and have had several of them in your career of doing this with your dad and whatnot. So like out of all of them, but that is a good answer. Like they may be soft, but if you overdo X, whatever X is, collar conditioning, mm-hmm. 
belly band, you know, whatever it is, like they kind of, if you're, if I'm picking up what you're putting down, it's, they are learning quickly. So if you overdo it, then it can take it away from them. And they're like, uh, yes, yes. And I think that's one of the biggest things is maybe the dog doesn't quite understand fully what's going on. And that is often perceived as soft. Fair. Yeah. I would go with any dog breed on that. Okay. For all you listening for dog training tips, any dog, if they don't understand why they're getting corrected and they're getting corrected, they're going to react in a way where they're like, I, I, I don't know what you want from me. So if they understand that might be different. But I have seen both ends of the spectrum between breeds I've, or between the Brittany breed. I've seen dogs that just don't give a shit. And I've seen dogs that have become, you know, this, you, you know, you kind of twitch of not twitch a finger, but you know, you, you go to a dog does something wrong and you go to take a step at it to correct it, whether it's picking the dog up, setting it back down, or you just want to relocate the dog, whatever it is. And maybe the dog does, you know, the tail drops down, the shoulders hunch up a little bit and it just looks and anticipates that something's coming. Yeah. Okay. How about, uh, this is a weird word, but I'm going to use it neurotic. We can kind of get pushy and fixated and a little wiry and mm-hmm. go on. <laughs> yes. Um, so <laughs> I have, I have one dog that the, the, if I had to say something that I wish the dog could improve on it is just being able to hold itself together a little bit more. Um, and I see, and I, I, it's, it's interesting watching the dogs between seeing what the lines that I have now and which dogs do these certain things and which dogs don't. I have, uh, a liver female Ember who are puppy Fox came out of both dogs, super, super good at controlling their emotions, keeping themselves composed. They don't get overly excited about anything and they are just complete pros at in the heat of the moment, anything that's going on of keeping themselves together. And on the other end, I have another female Aspen two and a half years old she gets really overly excited, really super easy. And when this happens, I almost feel like she's short circuiting a little bit and she's getting so jumpy and so wired up that she's not, you know, you're not able to just exactly translate to the dog in other ways that you're translating to the, to other dogs with it's, she just gets so wired and so jacked up. And so she, she loses all of her emotions in that one point and is so excited about what's to come. And she, she struggles to keep it together a little bit. And I see that who is a half sibling to her just ever so slightly bit in my other male. Um, he's a lot better at keeping himself more composed and keeping it together, but I still slightly see that trait in that line. Gotcha. Very good. Uh, not super watery. Like, you know what I mean? Like loving to swim. Uh, you definitely ask that like a bonehead, yeah. but, but that's okay. Uh, well, we would say a dog We're just sitting watery. here judging you. It's fine. That's fine. Yeah, lab is is watery. Like if I'm if I'm taking my dogs out to go on a 
on a boat on the afternoon in July, or we're going down to the lake and we're going to do some water work. I'm throwing bumpers. All my dogs are fair game to jump in. They're, they're, they're in the water. They love the water. Now let's go out in December uh, 23rd. It's two days before Christmas. We're back home. The boys are doing a duck hunt. There's a, a frozen pond that we're busting over water on. Am I expecting one of my dogs to want to go dive into that water? Like maybe, you know, a dog, like a lab that is designed and maybe bred for doing that more. No, my dog probably isn't going to do it. Could I force him to do it? And maybe would he do it? Yeah, he probably would, but he wouldn't enjoy it like other dogs would. That's a good and fair question. But overall, like as a puppy developing them, you didn't find any averseness to swimming or do you, and I'm going to caveat this with, do you think because you're savvy introducing them young in positive environments, you were able to manufacture that and create that? Cause like, I wouldn't expect them to do the December 23rd either. Some yeah. would, right? Like the short hair people like to somehow sometimes be like, my short hair loves icy water flows. It's like, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't think for the for the most part, uh, I get in the dog. Maybe you have you spend a little bit time, you know, getting the dog acclimated to the water. Be like, hey, like, yeah, you can actually go in here. It's not that bad. But once the dog gets over that fear of being in the water, it's always cool from there. Awesome. That's a good answer, man. I agree. And and, and by the way, again, I'm using stereotypes because I saw a, a several really high quality UT prize one Britney's that were, excuse me, did the duck search, like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I would just say I'm literally trying to stereotype and now I'm trying to come up with another one and I can't. So are there other stereotypes that you can think of that you can maybe dispel of the Britney? Like, Hard mouth, like, and I'm make, now literally making this up. Hard mouthed or um, vocal or whatever, like things like that. Yeah, I think there's there's two that come to come to mind. It would be, I guess, that go right in line with the next um, part of bird dogs. Is one the, the the dog doesn't run as big, or aren't Britneys aren't big runners, and two they don't retrieve which I think the retrieving thing has been said about every single breed out there, especially for pointing upland dogs out there. And it's despaired in each and every single breed, but I'll just, I'll throw it in there for the mix of that too. But so Britney's don't run that big. And I think when you, you have to boil it down to the realm of what the, what the breed is and what the, what it's competing against in general and what your expectations of running big is as well. And fair. that's all really fair. Those are all really fair things. And it all comes back into how I said, Britney's are really easy to be conditioned into doing certain things. And I think is, is a, is a Britney, a, an English pointer? Hell no. Obviously there's with, there's, you know, within the breed, there's both ends of the spectrum, but for the most part, Britney's are not dogs that are going to hit the prairie and open up to six, 700 yards like that. Um, but you can find dogs that will go out and hit four or 500 yards on the open prairie as Britney's. But then there's also, I think a lot of this, where this myth comes from is 
especially if it's a Brittany, maybe you're newer or this is just how you work your dogs, for example, is, you know, you don't want the dog getting too far away from you. So you're constantly heckling the dog, constantly calling. You take the dog to go outside to the bathroom. The dog gets 40 yards away from you. You're heckling it to come back to you. You know, you're going out, you're taking your dog to just as a, a dog owner, you're going to a park or somewhere. You don't want the dog running off on you. You're, you're constantly heckling it. Hey, come back here. Come back here, buddy. Well, guess what? That dog has now been over time conditioned to stick in that 40, 60 yard pattern of you because you've never given it the opportunity to go out and be its own independent thing to, to search and, and find things. You're just constantly heckling it. And like I said, Britneys are very conditionable dogs. So if you're constantly on your dog like that, a Britney's range shortens up real fast. And just from, from looking at it, I feel like there's, there's a lot of that that potentially comes from that part of it. Those are really great points. What do you think as an avid grouse guy, what do you think is an ideal range for a grouse dog? Um, if the dog, if the dog is working with you and, and minding you, I don't have a problem letting a dog go hit a hundred, 150 yards in the grouse woods. And that's not a dog that's, you know, circling back behind you a hundred yards, constantly trying to find you at a hundred, 150 yards. And now the dog is, you know, behind you, it's way off to your left. It hasn't made a cast back into the right for a while. Um, so if that dog is minding you and it can stay in that hundred and 150 yards range, you should be well off in the grouse woods. Now, if you, you, the dog maybe isn't minding you as much, you got to shorten it up and say, today I'm heckling and you're staying within 75 yards of me because once you get past a hundred, you're losing me. And it's just not working for the two of us to get any birds in the bag because you're over here. I'm wanting to go this direction and you're just not minding me and it's not working because you're working that extra distance today. That's also, you make a great point. I feel like it also has got to depend on where you're hunting, how the woods look. Cause I, or tell me I'm wrong. I mean, it, I feel like 150 yards for me, maybe I'm just like fat and slow, but I feel like it would take me a long time to get over to the dog and That's fine, Kevin. Woods. I'm going to just brag on Kevin's dog. That some bitch is going to be two hundo real quick. <laughs> oh, she runs like a horse through any yes. amount of, Yes. <laughs> Brush so, and cover. Fair question, but I'm remembering some covey hunts where we're like, well, <clears throat> she gone. She gone. She gone. <laughs> right. No, no, no. Well, yes. But my point is, is like if your dog, so let's say your dog goes on point in 100, 150 yards away. Where do you expect that bird to be? That, that was going to be my point. Case. I feel like at that point, by the time I would get there, at least for myself, yeah, I'd be like, Ugh. It's either I watched or walked off. Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe, I would, maybe it's, I, would I just expect, suck. I don't know. You tell I me. I would expect, I would have expected the dog or the, the bird to have moved at that point in time, unless the dog absolutely has it pinned and, you know, in a, at the bottom of a brush pile or something like that. But if it's just like, you know, like normally on grouse is the grouse always has some type of escape route. It's not going to get pinned down in the first spot it's sitting in unless you catch it with its pants on the ground. And it's like, holy crap, there's a dog 30 feet from me. I ain't moving now. But normally that's not the case, right? So the dog, 
you're, you're expecting the dog to have to relocate and rework that bird at that time. And it's something that comes with time. It's not something that's just like, Hey, my dog's going out there and he's hitting a grouse at 125, 150 yards from me and he's pointing. And by the time I get there, the bird has moved off. Well, that's all that all becomes part of the learning process for the dog. And it can take a couple years for it to stick. And it might not be until the dog is four or five years old, where at that point it's really figuring out how to figure out those grouse that are a little bit farther away between when, when the dog is farther away from you and the time that you get to the dog. Yeah. Lead. Mm, You thought I was going to say bismuth. I switched it up on you. Hey, get you and your buddies prepared for duck season, just like you're preparing your dog. Seven and a half by Kent. Go to the clay bird course. Go to sporting clay course. Get right so that you can knock more birds down with that bismuth this duck season. Hey, it's not only the food that fuels the truck of lone duck, but we also worry about that gut health. Sometimes the dogs get a little bit of rumbling in the tummies, and I like to help them out get all balanced with this product that Purina provides called Fortiflora basically a probiotic and you sprinkle a little bit of these pouches on the dog's food so for instance if i'm driving to a hunt test and they're rattling around on the trailer and you know sometimes their stomachs can get a little upset from stress movement anything that four to floor can really help balance them out get them back to feeling good and get ready to run so check it out it's purina's Florida flora boom when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another great way to support the show, and if you dig it and you want to rep it, it's LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We got hats, t-shirt, hoodies, all that good stuff. Even if you got a little lone duckling, a little baby on the way, you can get that onesie, as cute as can be, little kid's gear. But we've also got other things like bumpers, launchers, e-collars, anything you need to train a dog, you can find it at LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We're here to supply you so that you and your dog can get ready for duck season. All right. That makes sense. That's that's a good answer. It's a great answer. I have to slow down because my brain is firing on grouse experience. And so I got to slow myself down so that I don't ask 10 questions in a row. I'm doing Uh, the same thing. And I feel like all I want to do is jump in and cut you off and be like, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? Over here? Like, what does that look like? Oh, good. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking too, Kevin. So. Um, I'm going to give you the, we're going to use your dog Yeti as an example, older, experienced dog. Um, he's out at 120. You are alerted by the GPS collar. He's on point. How are you approaching him and how are you exposed? Uh, what are you expecting to find? Do you release him to go find it? Like talk me through a scenario that is common as you, you know, uh, approach a dog and how it you approach it. 
So, and for the example of Yeti, Yeti is a fully seasoned dog. He's, you know, I would consider him, you know, my grouse dog. And if I, he was working a bird, I've entrusted the confidence onto the dog now to say, if the bird isn't here and you feel that it's up to you to take matters into your own hands and relocate and rework the bird, go for it, buddy. I'm just going to hang back. Like if I, if let's say the dog is 125 yards from me, goes on point, I make it 75 yards and I'm now 50 yards from the dog. And I hear, you know, I see now I look down on the GPS and the dog is moving. Well, I'm going to slow my speed down a little bit because I don't want to add any extra pressure to the bird itself. The bird is already aware to the dog. So I'm just going to let the dog work this out on his own. And if he comes up with it, he comes up with it. If he blows the situation, it's on him. And it it happens from time to time that sometimes the dog gets, you know, a little greedy, overpressures the bird, but you're hoping that from those experiences that the dog learns from his past and eventually, you know, is going to be able to put all the pieces together where it's, it's, it's comes together almost every single time the dog has learned from his past mistakes and he's going to work cautiously on this bird and he's going to play it right. So I've pretty much transferred all the power over to the dog in that situation. And I take myself out of the equation. Like I said, I'll hang back and just let the dog work the bird and hope that he comes up and he pins it at some point. And I guess that's like, like that's what I'm looking for right there. It's just like that one-on-one interaction between that dog and that bird for that dog to do it right there. Like that's what, like that's badass right there. If that dog can go out there and work that bird like that, and all your job is to come in and do, and it's just shoot the bird when it gets flight. Like that's it, man. Like that's what I'm looking for. I think that beautiful when, when it happens. And I think that's the art and science and beauty and finesse and wonder that keeps me going back into the grouse woods is for every one that they do it right like that and you get a shot and you get it, you you shoot the bird. There's 50 where you bump the bird and you don't even see it. You just hear it. Or, yeah. Yep or the dog bumps the bird, or it does just wander off, or whatever the case may be. So there's 49 swings at bat, if you will, and then the one where it's like the heavens open up, a little light beam shines down on you and your dog and your gun and the bird, and you're like, ah. And then you miss. No, I'm saying you get it. That's (laughs) the one in 50. That's the one in 50. (laughs) Then there's 25 where you miss. And then there's others where it's like, I hear, I, I, I got caught a glimpse. I didn't even pull the trigger or whatever, but that one in 50, man, it's just like a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, how are you approaching your dog on point in the grouse woods? What is your tactic as you're weaving through the, the thicket towards the dog? How are you setting yourself up for success for a good shot? What do you also, we have a 10 million question, but like on top of that, like, what are you thinking? What are you looking for Yeah, as you're making your way? Well, you're trying to look at, you know, if, if you think of it like rabbit hunting, like 
you know, you look at brush piles, like where's that bird going to be? And it's something that, especially while you're approaching the the dog, you're constantly thinking, okay, if, as I'm walking right now, where I'm at in this point in time, if this bird was to get up, where's it going to get up? And then you take another 10 steps and now you're 10 feet farther. The bird hasn't taken flight. So it's like each step you're constantly evaluating what's in front of you. What's, what's my shooting lane? Where's this bird getting up at potentially where's the dark spots? Like where's the dark shadows that a bird would slip into if something was coming up to it, especially on those bluebird days where, uh, there's a, there's a lot of shadows in the, in the woods and you have really bright sections and really dark sections in the woods. So like, where's that dark spot at? Like, that's what I'm trying to key into those types of things when you're walking up on the dog and you're trying to cut up out in front of it. Like, you know, if I can make it to this tree, it looks like this from this tree in front of me. Like there's a, there's a shooting lane over here to my left that I could shoot through if the bird got up and there's one straight in front of me. And if it's not there, if I make it up to this next tree, what's it look like? in front of me from there for a shooting opportunity. But yeah, just looking for those, those dark spots, those shadows, um, a cluster of pines, you know, wherever that bird might be sitting in that's taken cover. Cause it's probably not just sitting out and, you know, the random openness, you know, that grouse is ducking into something. Absolutely. Absolutely. What part of Michigan, Michigan are you from? Uh, I am from the Southeast part of the state. Uh, just below the mid mid state line, we if you you take your map and you have your your thumb area here in Michigan, we live just on the outside of the thumb area uh, below mid Michigan. Okay, so I've been uh, I got a buddy. What's what's the big city there? Uh, Flint and Detroit. Not well, not Detroit. Um, I'm trying yeah. to think of where he Where's lives. Where's from? Grand Rapids. Yes. Okay. Grand Rapids had a wedding in Traverse City. Um, and then Kevin and I. So basically what I'm trying to pinpoint is like if we're we looking, drove past where he lives. Or yeah. Googled it. Yeah, I drove through you. So Kevin and I went to the UP with my buddy Hammer and his Brock Francais uh this last year. First voyage for me and Kevin to the UP. Um, our experience was awesome, minus the grouse numbers. So, which isn't may not necessarily uh, to right, say grouse how, numbers I'm, is pretty aggressive. Like it probably well, okay. You're going to the Mecca. No, I know. I was there. I had an entire 40 hour car ride of talking to you about how we're going to see a thousand grouse and it was going to be like. Yes, I I expected I expected 20 flushes, 30 flushes a day. In in my in my wildest dreams, right? Like you're going to the Mecca. So and I wasn't being greedy and expecting this. I just I thought it I just thought like we're going to the place where. Our dogs are going to get the experience. We're going to cracks at bat. That's what I would expect. If I was going to the UP tomorrow and I was going to find somewhere to grouse hunt, whether it was somewhere I knew if I just pulled up, I would expect a good day. I'd find 20 to 30 birds. See, that's awesome to hear and also ridiculously disappointing. Thanks for shoving <laughs> that in my face, Cliff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, had, we had good woodcock encounters and we yeah. did have grouse encounters, just not as many as I thought. 
And we it had also, a couple. Yeah. But again, like we to say grouse numbers, like it's also very possible that like where we were going to just show up and be like, all right, like let's pull up on X and see what we can find. It's also quite possible that we were just not in the most ideal place. Exactly. And so I don't know. Yeah, you're right, Kevin. I I looked at it again. I'm trying to balance this question or, and it's not even a question. It's like a discussion. Um, We had high expectations. The first day was like, we got humbled. Then we started to find grouse in different habitat. That is New York. Right. So we went and looked for New York habitat and weren't really finding grouse. Then when it's like, well, let's hit this spot up. We found some grouse. Then when we found a little bit more of that habitat, we found a little bit more grouse. And like one guy, I think he got six grouse. He shot six grouse. Yeah. He was a son of a gun. Yeah. He was a killer and (laughs) he's not getting invited back. (laughs) He, He was a killer. But the habitat was just a little bit different than what we were used to. So it took us a day or two to figure it out. And then the last two days, we started having more contacts. But New York and the UP isn't that different. And that's what kind of got me. Like, I still found habitat that in New York would be prime grouse, but there weren't grouse there. And then you'd be like, it does, I don't know, it doesn't look that good to me. But then there's freaking grouse there. So it it surprised me. Man, I think you just perfectly described grouse hunting. Like, I don't know if you were trying <laughs> to, but point. I think you like literally just summed it up perfectly. Humbling. Yeah, it's humbling. And just when you think you're like, oh, shit, like I got like. I got this figured out. Like we've starting to put a few pieces together. This spot over here seems very identical to what we just last run. Like we're going to go in here and have a a good time. And then at the end of it, you're like, I heard two birds and my dog busted one. And like, that was the extent of my walk. That was a good time. I'm glad, glad my, I have blisters now because we walked. Yeah. I got a few extra scratches on my face. So grouse habitat to me has to have um, multiple different, parts to it it's not just one aspect it's not just like let's say aspen there's not it's it doesn't just involve aspen there has to be different structure different type of edge lines habitat to that aspen besides just like hey the the state decided that they took this big flat of oaks and cut 40 acres of it and it came back as aspen and it's just a flat aspen cut uh, surrounded by oak like yeah it's aspen but like there's not a but whole that doesn't lot around necessarily it mean yeah you know what word i try and remind myself of when i'm like hunting and and searching for birds right like is confluence like where mm-hmm. where where's everything come together types of contours of land types of trees like where are we hitting that like everything hits right here and we and we have all this edge habitat Yes, that's it. So like, where does everything come together? Like, where does this creek that runs through this area finally comes up on the backside of this cut and that drops down into a little bit of a low area? And now you have some moisture in the soil, which has produced a few different types of plants, whether it's some dogwood or some thorn apples and, you know, some more darker soil 
attempts. And then up high, you have a, an Oak Ridge that comes off the top of that. And then between that coming in is now maybe like a, some type of conifer, you know, yeah. flat that runs along in that. So it's all those things converging, just like you summed up together. It's uh, one of the things I really like about it is how it's not just like with deer and I like deer hunting too, but like you just, you sit and wait for, for deer and you know where they're going to be or whatever, you know, they might be in the corn, you know, they might be in alfalfa or blah, blah, blah. Right. But in with ducks, like, you know, what ducks are flying, blah, 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 blah. With grouse hunting, you have to learn the area. You have to learn the types of trees, the types of berries, what kind of bush is that? How wet is the ground? Right. Like just there's so much to it. It's What's unbelievable. It? It's so cool that I think you'll never be an expert. You're, yeah. You're, and that's never, a... you never master it. You'll always be trying to like untangle the knot that is freaking grouse hunting. <laughs> yeah. That's it. As soon as you think you got it figured out, there's always something else that comes into it and you hit on something with it where it just seems like it's, it's unpredictable. A lot of times, but there's a lot of other predictability that goes into upland game birds. Like, you know, we go out West and we go out and hunt sharp tails, huns on the prairie. And it just, those birds become so predictable with where they're going to be roosted, the type of cover there that they're in, um, compared to, to, to grouse back home. And, you know, there's, you look at it, yeah, the birds could roost here, but they could also roost over here and they could fly down and feed here in the morning, but they could also fly a half mile this way and spend their morning feeding. And, you know, that's, then you're like, well, maybe I'll try and cut the roads and pick up a bird or two picking up grit, but there's so many different, you know, spots where a, a bird could pick up gravel and get its grit from in the morning. And so it really becomes hard to pinpoint those exact areas on, and unless you can string together these certain areas within a loop of a walk that you're doing. And that's where you can become a little bit more deadly as you, you start checking your ABCs and Ds as you go through, on a loop and eventually you'll find them. I feel like I'm a pretty analytical person. And so I always find myself trying to figure out like, okay, like what are some patterns here? What am I finding? What are, what are like the variables here? What are we doing? What are we not doing? And there's just so much that, that it's hard to keep track of, but that's part of the fun. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's grouse hunting. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're always trying to put the piece together and it's it's tough to pinpoint down exactly it is. And you can over be over analytical into it and you can think way too far into it. And then you really just start to, you know, get in your own head and you're like, I really don't know what I'm doing just walking around in this stupid woods <laughs> like, here. Truck, like, what the, like, what the hell am I doing here anyways? I knew I should have went to the other spot versus this. Right. So let's say you're coming to New York. First off, have you ever been? I have been to New York. Um, I haven't been upstate New York, uh, but I was just there briefly for work. Okay. Uh, let's say you're coming to hunt with me and Kevin, and we're going to take you to, you know, give you a general, like, this is where we want to hunt. It's a 50 square mile. Take, take a look at it on, on X. Do your research. Tell me what you see, what you don't see. What are you looking for when you're going to a new area and trying new covers? I'm looking for multiple covers that run together. 
And things can't just be one-sided. It can't just be all Aspen or all pines or all oak or whatever that type of structure is that you're looking at. It has to be something that has all parts of those pieces together. So it's got to have um, Aspen to it that's within a certain age range. And then it also has to have, I, I like areas with lower land to them, darker soils, because those darker soils versus the higher sandier areas produce a lot more um, structure within them versus the sandier areas that sandy areas just kind of grow back like sparse, crappy looking stuff. Like you wouldn't even want to waste your time walking through that, looking at it because it's so wide open. But those darker soiled areas that are low land where the water collects down a little bit more, uh, they grow a lot more structure to them. You have a lot more different plants uh, and things that grow into these areas. So I'd be looking at lower lands, um, depending on what type of time of year it is, uh, where, you know, is are leaves fallen yet, for example, or is it still early season with a lot of leaves on the trees yet? Um, or is it later in the year when it's a little bit, um, there's maybe snow on the ground. And so I guess those are, that's what I'd be looking for going into an area is, uh, is, is where's the lowland area and surrounding that lowland area, what, what type of habitat where multiple habitats converge into one area. And that's where I'd start off at. Very cool. Very cool. Dude, I, uh, I feel like I'm almost questioned out because we covered so much in like the best way. I feel like I, I was taking notes. I know the podcast, but also, you know, taking notes. Me too. So I want to, I am not done with questions, so it's not over. But I want to learn about your business because we never even touched on that yet. So how long has this business been involved? Because I started as a t-shirt and hat company, like selling gear and and e-collars and wingers. Like that's how I got my name in the industry. And And so to see a fellow, you know, entrepreneur getting after it, I want to hear your story and how you got into this and and how it's evolved. So we've been around for the brand itself going into our fifth year now, and we're in our fourth year of sales right now for apparel. So we sell hats, stickers, t-shirts, everything Upland inspired type of lifestyle gear like that. And we've been at it for, the brand's been around for five years and it's been four years now that we've been, we've been selling. And it all started out with like, I was, I was gluing, I had ordered some like Richardson hats and I'd started the brand and just put Uplander on like this faux leather patch. And I ordered the patch and I like glued them on. And we just started off by like selling that and the, on the website and we kept at it and we, we made more designs and we just, it just evolved from there. And that's kind of the, the cool start about it. It's always been a uh, f- from the ground, you know, like a root startup type thing that we've been able to to grow into what is fortunately now uh, between my wife and I, it's our full time living. And we're I, I shout out to my wife as well. She's not seen here, but she is my other half in this business venture uh, in Uplander. So shout out to her. She is the other half of Uplander. She's just not represented by being here tonight. But yeah, she, um, uh, I started out looking at the upland industry as a whole and saying like, Hey, like, how can I 
get into this and like, what are my, what are my strengths and how can I help, you know, push this industry forward? How can I help, you know, keep moving the needle in this industry forward, whether it's creating content or creating lifestyle type gear that I felt both those things were really lacking from the market at that time. So that's really how it all transpired was just looking at the Upland market and saying, Hey, like, here's my background of uh, social media, marketing, photography, video work, graphic design, and how can I apply that to something I'm really passionate about? And a planter was born from there and it's grown into now we have a full line of graphic design or lifestyle t-shirts, hoodies. Uh, we have some performance wear as well for the field. And yeah, it's just, we're trying to keep expanding and keep growing in that market uh, for Uplander. It's awesome, man. And again, your, your content on YouTube and Instagram is fantastic. How did you get started in like being good at this stuff, being good at the graphic design and is this what you did before or it's just like you tinkered with it and it manifested into your passion? Yeah. So I always, um, I'd started out with, I, I graduated high school and I was going into first semester of college and dude, I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. I was like, and I spent a, a semester going and sitting and writing papers and doing all this bullshit and math problems. And I'm like, why the hell am I like, sitting here doing all this when I don't even know what I want to do with it. Like, Preach. It seemed... Preach. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess so. So yeah, I mean, I just was like, why, why am I sitting here at school writing papers and doing math problems still? And I don't even know what I, what I wanted to do. And I happened to um, have more time to myself. Like after, you know, graduating high school, you're not in such a day-to-day -day routine, you know, going into semester of college, probably slacking off a little bit more, hunting a lot more than I should be. And I was like, like, what can I do with hunting that would like be something cool and fun with it? So one day I just bought this little handy cam and I started just putting, like, I taped it on a tripod or something like this makeshift pot tripod that I had. And I started like filming, just filming my hunts and filming deer. And I really got into the creative side of filming my hunts and just like being wrapped up in the cameras. And I get, really got like into that aspect of it of doing the camera work, editing, and then that translated into me just getting more cameras. Um, and eventually I went to, I, I dropped out of the school that I was at, the university I was, and I went to more of a trade work school for photography, digital media, which was gr graphic design, photography, video work and stuff. So I went to a year long program there and learn some things. And then, yeah, I just, I just became, I tried to really become, you know, a master of my craft of being super creative and translating that into uh, digital media, whether it's graphic design or photography or video work. And I ended up doing more in the big game outdoor space. And I ended up uh, becoming for, I gosh, I think I was like three or four years. I was full-time outdoor filming for television shows. So I would travel with people to go film their hunts for oh, cool. whether it was this, the sportsman's channel or the outdoor channel network. Um, so I did that for a few years and then uh, came back home and decided I was kind of done traveling so much in the fall. And I wanted to get back to hunting myself and having a more day-to-day -day life versus just traveling so much. And it, the opportunity came up and I worked for a company called Hawk tree stands and killer instant crossbows. 
Yeah. And they were just at the, just at the time they happened to be just up the road from me from where I was living currently. And I'd reached out to the guy and, you know, I got a job there and I started doing graphic design for them. Um, and just shout out to, you know, my mentor from there, Scott Lee. Um, I worked with a, a gentleman named Scott Lee there for almost eight years. And he really taught me a really good work ethic and being, you know, creative and being able to hone all these things in together. And that's where I, I pit a lot of my success from, from a mentor like that, of just being able to now work in a multi, you know, faceted, uh, social media world with sales content and also, you know, driving a business. And there's, that's where a lot of that came from. And then it translated into just starting my own brand. Good for you. Yeah, dude, I love hearing people's stories like that because A, it reminds me of myself. We're like, to your point, you had no idea what you're doing. What do I want out of life? You weaseled your way into the outdoor industry because it's a passion. And then it put you in touch with people that built you and helped stand you up. And then now you're crushing it. So I respect and admire and fully appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like that's it. That's it. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, I just love your story. It's, it's very inspiring, man. Like it's just a hard, it's just grit. Like you just worked your tail off and got it done. I respect that. Um, we should do something co-branded, Lone Duck, Uplander, something grousey. I don't know. I have no idea what. I just I feel like it'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Always, so, always open for opportunity. Right. That's all I got. I saw it's you. Awesome. Awesome Captain's just wheels are turning. Like, hey, why don't we do? Uh, yeah, no, that would be fun as shit. We should yeah. also figure out a grouse hunt. I, yeah, and that's probably the most important thing. Yeah, that's the most important thing. Can you are you able to travel much during the hunting season or are you stuck to home hunting home? Oh yeah. I mean I I definitely I travel quite a bit during hunting season. Like I think um All right. like I guess uh, yeah, always open to, to go places and hunt. I think for this year coming up, I'll be out west the, for three weeks in September, then back home October, uh, Michigan grouse hunting here for October, November, December. And then usually we head down southwest and hunt quail down there for a month too after that. So you have a you just got a dunk on everybody with having such a cool hunting life. It's okay. But maybe <laughs> so we'll figure something out. We should do we should figure something out. But uh do you have a bucket list upland game bird that you have not been able to hunt yet? Or maybe you've hunted but just swung and missed or what? Ah, oh, man, I, I, I had one at the top and I didn't even, I guess I didn't even really realize it was at the top until I went and did it. And that was, we, we went sage grouse hunting two years back and I kid you not. And it only, it almost pains me because it sounds like, you know, fake and phony to say it like this, but dude, we, we absolutely like knocked it out of the park on our first walk and we all limited out on sage grouse. Like it was expecting going into a, a hunt like this, like you're going to walk 14 miles and maybe see, maybe see a bird and your dog's pads are going to be all tore up and you're all parched and sweating and you've killed two snakes on your walk. But 
Yeah, that was it. We went, we, we, we set up a hunt to go sage grouse hunting. Like this is what we want to go do. And we did a lot of research into it and we went and had an absolutely unbelievable walk on our first half mile stretch for these birds. And it was, it was unreal. And I don't think I could ever replicate it again, what we did, but outside from there, I don't think I've set another, another bucket list bird. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Do me a favor. Tell everyone where they can find you again. If they want to follow you and grab your gear and watch your videos, because like I said, if you're a little, little sluggish on a Saturday or Sunday morning after a long night, of bush lattes i promise you this is the youtube channel that will get you ready for grouse season so tell them where they can find you you can check everything out on our website uplanderlifestyle.com and then you can see everything on our social channels that for the content we create instagram uplander lifestyle and then our youtube channel uh, uplander as well absolutely i highly support you i highly encourage people to watch your your stuff and uh if you're feeling fancy and want to grab some of his gear please do so dude thank you for taking time for me and kevin and joining the show i enjoyed it i would love to somehow finagle a hunting trip together uh it's not out of the question that we won't be coming back to michigan um my buddy lives there we love it there we had a blast and so maybe if if that is something that can happen this year or next year we'll have to connect and just send it Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Thank you for being a part of the show. Yeah, thank you. Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs, and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today.